In this episode of Ottawa Business Journal's Behind the Headlines, the federal government signals big changes to its downtown real estate portfolio. We get an update on mandatory vaccine policies for the feds, and we check in with Ottawa's charitable sector. All this and more coming up right now. Behind the Headlines is brought to you by Nelligan Law, Ottawa's fierce, proven, and human law firm. Visit them at nelliganlaw.ca. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines for the week of October 25th. I'm Michael Curran from the Ottawa Business Journal. Behind the Headlines is our regular podcast from OBJ to explore the biggest headlines of the day. We have three segments lined up for you today. As usual, I'll speak with my colleague at OBJ, David Solly, uh, to dig into a big local news headline. In segment two, we will talk to our experts from Nelligan. Today, we're talking about mandatory vaccine policies for the feds. And to conclude in segment three, we talk to our newsmaker in this episode. We're going to check in with Ottawa's charitable sector. So let's move to David Solly right now. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, Mike. How are you today? Pretty good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. And uh, Dave, this was a real story that caused a bit of a buzz. Uh, of course, as you know, Dave, there are about 140,000 federal public servants uh, that work in the national capital region. And most of those people work downtown, except during the pandemic. <laughs> uh, so everyone's working from home. And that's causing all sorts of questions, uh, Dave, about the well-being of downtown. Uh, also, you know, uh, the, the well-being of the commercial real estate sector in the central core. Uh, Dave, there was an event uh, just recently called the Ottawa Real Estate Forum, which is a chance for commercial real estate professionals to come together and talk about big issues. At that event, a assistant deputy minister spoke about federal government real estate downtown. What did he say? Well, Mike, uh, he he uh, he said some stuff that is that is definitely sure to get uh, to get people talking in the real estate community. No doubt about it. Um, now, as you know, everybody is looking to go green, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what sector you're in, everybody's looking to cut their carbon footprint, become more environmentally friendly. Well, the feds are no different. And the way they see it, one of the biggest ways they can cut their greenhouse gas emissions is by finding greener real estate, uh, real estate that uses less energy, that's, um, you know, that has things like green roofs, all that kind of stuff. And well, uh, as you know, Mike, um, uh, the feds have a pretty big real estate footprint here in Ottawa, and a lot of it is getting, let's say, a little long in the tooth. Um, so during the real estate forum uh, last week, uh, uh, Stéphane Derry, uh, he's the Assistant Deputy Minister for Real Property Services at Public Services and Procurement Canada, he, uh, he, uh, he told uh, Nathan Smith of Cushman and Wakefield um, you know, that the, the federal government's um, uh, plan to cut greenhouse gas emissions by a minimum of 40% by 2030 will likely mean the feds are going to start looking at selling off some of their marquee properties uh, in the down on core that, you know, that are aging and that really are not uh, all that adaptable to, to modern energy efficiency targets. So, you know, I think Places like L'Esplanade Laurier, for example, was the uh, was um, was the one big one he pointed to. That's, of course, the two tower, uh, twenty three story 
tower to complex on Laurier Avenue. Uh, everybody knows it. If you've been downtown, well, uh, he suggested that, you know, it's that building was built in the mid seventies and he said it's getting to the end of its useful life. And, um, and the, and there's a very good chance that within the next four to six years, Lespinade uh, Laurier is probably going to be put on the market. Um, uh, the feds are going to, you know, target the, the, the private sector so that maybe, uh, maybe somebody will buy it, convert it into, into another office type or maybe residential uh, units, who knows? So, um, and there's, there's a bunch of buildings downtown that could fall under that category. Um, uh, the feds currently occupy about 37 million square feet of space in the region. Um, and, um, roughly half of that is leased. So they, uh, so they have a pretty big footprint of their own. Um, but at the same time, uh, a lot of those properties, they're going to be coming up. Those, those leases are going to be, uh, you know, coming due in mm -hmm. the next few years. And the feds are looking to find ways to move into more carbon neutral buildings uh, by the end of the decade. So, um, uh, so basically, Derry suggested that you know this could be an opportunity for landlords that um, that have more environmentally friendly properties to maybe uh, make a pitch to the feds. You know, these he said the feds are going to be looking for that accessible modern space again, carbon neutral. This 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 green building sort of idea, being as energy efficient as possible. Uh, so that's one big thing he talked about. And of course, like you mentioned, everybody's working at home right now. What's that going to mean over the long term? Well, Derry didn't, uh, if you want a pat answer, uh, Derry didn't give it to us because uh, he said right now things are still in a state of flux. Um, feds are juggling to try and figure out what the future is going to look like. Uh, definitely space will be used differently. There's no doubt about that. But just how it's going to be used is, is still kind of up in the air. Um, uh, he did say the, the feds do plan to cut their real estate footprint by about 30% over the next 25 years. Whether that gets pushed ahead, whether they cut even more, um, now that we're, uh, you know, the, the, we've all become accustomed to remote work and this idea of a hybrid work, uh, work environment takes hold. Um, well, that remains to be seen, seen because whatever happens, Nothing is going to happen overnight for the feds. They, they still have a lot of long-term leases. Uh, so how that all plays out remains to be seen. But Derry also did suggest that, um, that definitely the hybrid idea is really, is really going to become the norm and that that could, could change um, both the composition and the location of the feds' real estate footprint. You know, he suggested that maybe uh, in the future, people will want to work closer to their homes um, in the outlying uh, parts of the city, in the suburbs, as opposed to all gathering in big buildings in the core. So he floated this idea of a network of satellite offices, uh, even all over the country, where people can basically work near their homes, gather in sort of uh, essentially co-working type spaces where everybody from different departments can gather and, uh, and can, work, um, can, mm. can, can work from a space that's more convenient uh, for them rather than having to go to a big central office in downtown Ottawa. And, and the feds, Dave, uh, that's not, uh, the, they've all experimented with this. It's happening at Plaster Orleans, uh, out, uh, out my way, uh, in the East end. Um, so it's really, it's interesting. It's a confluence of factors. The impetus for this is not, um, Hey, people working from home, we should cut the real estate. It's a environmental, uh, um, a goal that they're looking to, um, to achieve. But the interesting thing is because 
there's been this giant experiment during the pandemic of federal government workers uh, working from home, then this gives them a lot more freedom to say, wow, we might be able to put, we initially thought we could, you know, reduce the footprint by X percent. Now with work from home, we might be willing to go to 50% or something like that. Is, does that sound about right? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, certainly that is, uh, that's, that's going to be something that's talked about a lot in the coming years, Mike. I mean, I mean, 30%, right. That was the target they set, I think, even before the pandemic. So I can't imagine that, 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 that they're going to reduce that. Uh, they're, they're, they're going to lower no. their targets at all. Uh, they're, they're only probably going to go up. So, so the question is just how much more are they going to go up and how much more real estate are they going to end up cutting? Right. So, um, yeah. it'll be interesting to keep an eye on. It, for sure, this this will be one of the you know the big trends in in commercial real estate, um, and and the impact of this, of course, is far ranging. In fact, I I heard uh, former uh, Mayor Larry O'Brien speaking recently, and he was just voicing his uh, opinion that the you know the health of the downtown uh, might be one of the biggest issues facing Ottawa in in coming years. You know, we don't want to be alarmist. It's it's not like the that the federal public servants aren't coming back. So the situation. Yeah will certainly improve as the pandemic uh, subsides. Uh, but again, I, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of this remains yet to be seen where it falls. So interesting to watch, Dave. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Dave, for your time today. Good work as always, uh, and uh, hope to see you real soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Mike. It's time to consult now with our experts from Nulligan Law. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Malini Vijay Kumar, a lawyer and member of the Employment and Labor Practice Group at Nulligan Law. Hello, Malini. Hi, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. Um, and welcome back to Behind the Headlines. We spoke, it's probably two or three weeks ago, uh, about mandatory vaccine policy. And, and when we talked, it was kind of like a policy intent that was voiced by uh, the prime minister. So this was really the early days, you know, before the mandatory vaccine policy was rolled out both federally and, and uh, federally uh, instituted um, industries. Uh, give us an update that a lot has happened since that time. So let's just zoom out a little bit for us, Molini, and say mandatory vaccine uh, policies rolled out and... <laughs> Yeah, so you're right, Michael. Last time we spoke, um, it was sort of a, a detailed glimmer in the Prime Minister's eye and not too much more than that. Um, and then, of course, we had to experience the federal election. Uh, and leading up to the election, of course, the government can't make big changes like instituting this kind of policy because they don't know who's going to be in power afterwards. Now we know, of course, the Liberals stayed in power and uh, quite soon, they instituted uh, their uh, Treasury Board's mandatory vaccination policy for workers in the federal public sector. So that's actually taken effect as of October 6th. And the uh, federal government workers are now in the process of attesting to their vaccination status. Uh, or, of course, they will be put on unpaid administrative leave if they do not. And uh, I have two follow-up questions, but the first was, from your perspective, how did uh, the unions and uh, federal employees uh, react to that mandatory um, requirement? Well, I think the requirement overall was received with not a lot of surprise and mostly positive uh, reception. However, it's interesting that you mentioned the unions, Michael, because 
Uh, Treasury Board had said earlier in the summer that they would consult with the public sector bargaining unions before releasing such a policy. That consultation period ended up being less than 24 business hours. The policy in draft form was released on a Friday uh, and comments effectively solicited before or, or by Monday. So not a lot of time given for consultation. We know that some of the public service unions have um, voiced their displeasure about that, but the overall aim of mandatory vaccination is still uh, enjoying widespread support. And my second follow-up was, um, so public servants specifically are attesting, or people in, in federally regulated industries are attesting uh, that they're doubly uh, vaccinated. Um, what if they're not? Do you see an issue uh, coming up on the horizon here? <laughs> I see potentially multiple issues coming up on the horizon. First of all, uh, because they've chosen to use this attestation scheme rather than asking for direct proof of vaccination, there is the risk, even if unlikely, that somebody will make a false attestation. And um, of course, the policy says that you'll face quite severe consequences for your employment if you do that. But uh, we'll have to see if such situations come to light. And then, of course, the, there are the employees who either don't want to get vaccinated or don't want to disclose their vaccination status, who under the policy um, have to participate in uh, an educational initiative about the benefits of the vaccine and who, if they still choose not to get vaccinated, may be put on leave without pay. So I think certainly we're going to see a lot of uh, federal public sector employment grievances arising out of that. Lots more to watch there, Melanie. Maybe we'll have you back another time to, to keep tabs on this. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. One aspect of our community that deserves a little bit more attention, especially during the pandemic, is the charitable sector. Hundreds of charities help us tackle all sorts of social challenges from poverty to better education and improved health care. My guest today has unique insights into the charitable sector on the giving side of the equation. His company, WCPD, helps its clients make major gifts to charitable organizations in a unique tax-efficient manner. Please welcome the founder and president of WCPD, Peter Nicholson. Here he is. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hi, Michael. Good to see you. It's great to see you, too. Uh, you're at your downtown office. I'm getting a look at the Byword Market uh, activity. That's great. So, so Peter, just in case there are people that don't uh, aren't aware of WCPD, I hope everybody's aware of it, but give us kind of the elevator pitch, so to speak. Sure. Uh, well, it's an acronym. It uh, stands for Wealth Creation, Preservation, and Donation, WCPD. Uh, I usually have people remember through NYPD or LAPD, the, the, uh, the police forces, but uh, we're WCPD. Uh, we help people create uh, wealth, preserve wealth. If, you have, if you've done a good job with creation, the next step is to preserve it. And the last step is we help people give it away. And uh, that's, that's the donation. Been in business since 1987. Uh, started when I was 22 years old, right out of university. Uh, I was the first and only employee for many years. And then I grew. I, I hired my cleaning lady for a part-time, my sister for a summer. And we've grown and uh, grown. And in 95, I got into tax reduction. In 2006, I got into philanthropic tax planning, which we're going to be talking about today. And I'm proud to say we're up to now 20 employees uh, in our 33rd, uh, going on our 34th year in business. Wow. 
That is, that's incredible. And I know you're, you're so involved in the community, by the way, and you've grown the business. Congratulations on all of that. Peter, I wanted to start off by asking you uh, about the charitable sector. So quite literally, I think you have the finger on the pulse when it comes to a lot on the charitable sector, particularly when it comes to major gifts. So uh, give us an update about what has been happening to these major gifts to charities during the pandemic. Right, right. Well, it was a it was a crazy combination because uh, I remember March very, very well. We were doing, and we'll talk a little bit further about the flow throughs. But we had our biggest offer of all time. Been doing this for sixteen years. These charity flows, and a company that we deal with every year had a major drilling program. They wanted thirty three million dollars uh, to be raised, and they offered it to us at the end of February. At that time, it looked all fabulous. We all celebrated. We thought this was a terrific opportunity. And it turned into pretty soon, um, we thought maybe an anchor or around our, around our necks because COVID really came into focus in the middle of March. We were contacting our regular uh, donors that donated every year, like to use our structure because of it's a tax-efficient, compliant way uh, to give large donations. And we weren't getting anywhere, of course. People were asking us, what, don't you read the news? I don't know if I'll even have money for myself, let alone share it with uh, charities. So there was a lot of fear, Michael. I fear for about three weeks. The stock market was down 20 30% and with a lot of their investments. And then, if you recall, it came rocketing back up. Uh, and we actually sold it all out on the Easter weekend, which was a total shock. But the reason why is... It resonated with the donors across Canada. Our charities need us more than ever. It looks like we're not going to take a massive hit on the stock market, and we've got to actually go further. You know, if someone that's a multi-multi-millionaire loses a good chunk, 10, 20, 30% of their net worth, they're still a multi-millionaire. Very different if uh, for a big chunk of the population that was really struggling, the gyms, the, the restaurants, anything in the service industry. So, uh, and that hasn't stopped. They, they're still giving. Uh, we had a good year in 2020. We had another good year in 2021, all because of people stepping up uh, with COVID, the big donors. Interestingly enough, it's same thing happened in 208, 209. I've been using the structure since 206. One of our best, or well, a banner year is 208, and 209 in the financial crisis was at that time our best year of all time. So it just shows when times are tough, the big philanthropists in Canada do step up. Wow, that that is so encouraging to hear, Peter. And and I want to uh, spend uh, just a brief moment here talking about I'll, I'll call it a financial instrument or mechanism that you use to make, as we said, these tax efficient uh, major gifts. And I'm referring to what's called flow through shares. Can you give us a bit of an update on what's happening with this um, tax efficient giving mechanism? Sure. Well, um, basically what I did in 2006, Stephen Harper finished the job that Paul Martin started. Uh, Prime Minister Martin had a half capital gain if you donated public shares in 1997. And 2006, Prime Minister Harper said no capital gain if you donate public shares uh, to charities. And I knew right there that the flow-through share, which has been in the code since 1954, it's there to promote uh, mining exploration. The government gives you a 100% deduction, uh, just like an RSP. And actually, the flows are, are three years older than RSP, started in 1957. So I thought, well, look, I've been doing these as a safe area with Revenue Canada, uh, wanting more drilling, which is more jobs. And actually, they're the biggest employer of Aboriginals. This is all more in the northern area. 
And I said, if we do then take those shares that are public and then give them to charities of our client's choice, we could get a second deduction because we're helping a second tax policy. So really what this is all about is creating jobs since 1954. That's been the policy with flows. And 1917 is the charitable credit if you give to, to charities. By combining these two tax policies, uh, you can actually get a phenomenally tax-efficient donation. Uh, and that's what our clients do. They actually try to give more. Usually they're giving three times more than they usually would just because of creating that tax efficiency. And we charge a fee and there's lawyers and accountants and investment bankers involved. That also includes our fees. And yet you can still change a $100,000 gift into 300000 Wow. So very tax efficient and a big social uh, benefit to everyone. So that's that's fantastic, Peter. I want to talk about an event that's coming up where I think you're excited. I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, the event is coming up, by the way, on November 10th at the National Arts Centre, and it's called The Fills. It's an event for um, uh, put on by the Association of Fundraising Professionals. And it's the Ottawa Philanthropy Awards. WCPD is the title sponsor. Um, mm. Excited to see people back in person at a at a gala. Peter? Yeah, really am. It, it's uh, we'll have 150 people. There'll also be other people, of course, on Zoom. We've done. We're starting to do the hybrids. For a year, we, there was no hybrid. It was all on Zoom. We've done. I was involved in the Ottawa Regional Cancer Foundation breakfast and Boys and Girls Club had a breakfast and the Ottawa Auto Hospital in Royal Ottawa. Uh, but nothing beats the face to face camaraderie. Of, of being there. And in the fills, I call them the Academy Awards for the big donors in the city. And they should be celebrated. Uh, it's a big aspect of what makes Ottawa great. Uh, and we've actually been a sponsor for 14 years, but seven years ago, we stepped up and became the title sponsor. It's a really good fit for our firm, of course. Here we are trying to help get more major gifts, and we're here to celebrate the major gifts, as well as, um, you know, the top small business uh, uh, corporation that gives to philanthropy. There's one of my favorites. It's uh, the Youth Award. These are youth philanthropists, usually, you know, 20, 30-year-olds, young people, and uh, once in a while, you'll get uh, someone like uh, like Logan, who is one of my favorites two years ago, and he was only 12 years old, Logan Hussein. So, and his his focus was the charity of Chio. So anyways, it's a great, great time and a great celebration, and it's very fiscally strong. We've got great sponsorship now, and, uh, and it's stronger than it really has been uh, in many, many years, the Phil's. Very, very inspirational uh, stories come out, and and I'd uh, encourage everyone to go to the AFP Ottawa website and get some information on that event. There's some tickets available. As we wrap up, Peter, I want to talk about a project that you and I work on uh, together, and it's called the Giving Guide. It it also started a few years back, but it's an annual directory of local charities, and also tells all sorts of um, strategies and trends in fundraising. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the giving guide, Peter. Well, look, a, a brilliant idea. And, uh, and you know, I, I can't give, give the credit. That really is Jeff Todd and yourself that the two journalists, Jeff Todd's the head of communications for my firm. Uh, but here's a picture of last year's. I thought it was, uh, I mean, they're beautiful in size. I love that it. it's it's a reinventing the gala. So last year when we're naming the gala, the champagne's being popped. But you can see just the substance. That it's, it's a big, big magazine. It's a magazine that they keep. Uh, OBJ has been telling me that you have a good time you know, selling the advertisement. The people yeah. want to be there. And uh, yeah, so this is our fifth year of doing it. Uh, again, it, it works through just like the fills. Let's celebrate. 
this was never done before. You, Michael, you were the first in our yeah. firm with the, we, we, I wrote the check. That's all I can do. <laughs> you guys are the brains behind it. Yeah. And it was so good. I have to brag that uh, Vancouver picked it up shortly thereafter. Yes, I heard that. First year, uh, all with WCPD's support. And uh, it's, a, it's a big, big win uh, yeah. across Canada. It is, you know, it is a win, and we're we're very happy by it. By the way, uh, kudos. You, you, we need to give a shout out to Jeff Todd for sure because he's doing a lot of the heavy lifting on your side. And in, in fact, I'll just give uh, viewers a little bit of a preview. The cover story is uh, titled "An Undeniable Reckoning" and it shines the light on Indigenous-led uh, philanthropic uh, efforts. Uh, and as you included, we're always interested in the trends and how things are evolving. So we will take a look at how the pandemic changed fundraising, maybe temporarily, maybe permanently. And uh, as you indicated there, Peter, there's lots of profiles, double page profiles and all these charities. Uh, so this uh, guide will launch digitally at the fills. We just talked about that annual gala. So it'll be launched digitally there and we'll soon have some printed copies. Thank you, Peter, for spending some time with us and everything that you do in the city, this unique tax efficient way that you've uh, making available to people in Ottawa. I encourage them to, to contact you. Thanks for your support of the fills and also the giving guide. Thanks for joining well, us. And thank you for all your support you give us and the OBJs doing great, great work. So well done to you as well, Mike. Have a great day, Peter. Bye-bye. Thank you to Peter Nicholson again from WCPD. Well, that's it for this episode of Behind the Headlines. Uh, a reminder that you can continue watching this episode on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, please give it a like, follow our channel, hit the little bell icon, then you get the notification about when we post new videos. Of course, the show is also available in an audio format on all major podcast platforms. I encourage you to visit obj.ca. That's where we post news uh, almost every few hours during weekdays. And if you never want to miss an article, you can subscribe to OBJ Today. That's an email newsletter that goes out Monday to Friday. It's read by thousands of local business executives. Uh, really helps you keep in the know when it comes to local business news. So once again, on behalf of my colleague, David Solly and all the other great people at Ottawa Business Journal, thanks for watching. Please stay safe and stay connected. See you real soon.